Welcome to Fintech Daydreaming. The podcast that dives into the world of banking technologies and the ever-changing landscape of fintech companies. We bring you real-life examples from global and local thought leaders, as well as experts working within the financial industry, and seek out the best stories from the front lines of financial services innovation, where dreams of industry pioneers meet reality. Hosted by Paul Krogdahl and Ville Sontu. This is Fintech Daydreaming. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fintech Good, all the Fintech goodness you would ever want, brought to you by our uh, by your friends here at Fintech Daydreaming. My name is Ville Sontu. I will be your host uh, today for this episode, but of course, I, I will never do this alone. I always do this with my good friend and co-host, Paul Krugdahl. Paul, have you recovered from uh, from the May Day festivities here in Finland? I have indeed, yes. It was actually a very quiet one. And I, I noticed their introduction, you didn't make the same mistake as me last time and put in the partner in crime, which we've <laughs> actually had an awful lot of uh, comments and feedback on, right? That was, that was a touch and go situation there at the beginning. So thank you for uh, leaving that purely with me. We, we did clarify it, that it's not financial crime, though. Exactly. It was just partner yes. crime. So yeah, yeah, we, we did not fail any KYC or AML processes. Yeah, we're fully compliant on this yes. front, so uh, so that we're all good, good to go. And speaking of good to go, I think what we need to do now is is bring in our guest uh, today. And uh, we we sometimes say that our guests don't don't need any introduction, and I think this is one of those occasions when our guest really doesn't need any introduction. But nonetheless, uh, we have him here. Uh, the man himself, Chris Skinner. How are you today, Chris? Yeah, I'm brilliant, and trust you guys are good too. <laughs> yes, yes, we are indeed. Uh, it's uh, it's a little bit late uh, for us to record at this hour, but uh, I think uh, you know the later it is, the the smoother the conversation I think uh, we're gonna have. But hey, Chris, uh, we did establish that you need no introduction. But uh, just in case that there is somebody in the audience, uh, like my mother perhaps, who who hasn't perhaps heard of you before. Uh, how, how did you land here? How are you today talking to, in a fintech podcast and what's your what's your background? So I spent uh, many years working with technology and financial services and then was made redundant in 2002 and started to write about technology and financial services. And it ended up that I started blogging in 2007 every single day about technology and financial services, producing 17 books about technology and financial services, which is now called fintech. I was in the right space at the right time. I'm a, I'm a lucky guy. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think this term fintech came around, uh, I don't know, 2010, give or take. But at least I feel I've been working in financial technology for at least 20 years. But uh, yeah, fintech before fintech was fintech. I think that's what we uh, like to say. Uh, but Chris, we have to get one thing out of the way. Uh, I know I know our listeners are waiting for this every time, and that's that we ask our friends here the, uh, in the uh, friends and, uh, of of the podcast and guests on the podcast to to do a joke uh, in the beginning of the podcast. And Paul actually likes to do it in the end, but we're going to do it in the beginning now. So uh, Chris, would you have a, a banking or a fintech related joke uh, for our listeners? Yeah, it's a really bad one, but basically. Um... Batman decided to throw a Bitcoin party and invited the Justice League over to enjoy the evening. And Wonder Woman was there, Aquaman and the Flash, Green Lantern, but no Superman. So Batman rang Superman and said, where are you? You should be at my party. And Superman said, you should know I don't do any crypto nights. (laughs) (laughs) 
I actually think that's one of the better ones we've had. Yeah, on, I think the, on, yeah that on, was actually one of the best ones we've ever had. So yeah, I think <laughs> we, our standards are a little bit different, uh, but well, that's good. Crypto and superheroes in, in the same joke. I, it's definitely an achievement. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. But hey, uh, let's get on with the conversation. Uh, I love I love the fact that you're here with us, Chris, because we have so much to talk about. You said you've, you've written 17 books, and we're going to get uh, to talk about the book a little bit uh, later as well, the latest one you did, uh, which is an interesting one. But uh, I, I thought that it uh, uh, would be good to kind of get some of these basic conversations out of the way. And uh, since we have a person like you with all the all the history and uh, uh, in the in this uh, area and, and, a, and a very active writer also in the area of fintech we have to ask of course what are the current hot topics uh, in fintech that you uh, that are on top of your agenda on top of mind for you today so when you go and uh, talk to people about uh, the hottest topics uh, of, of today what are those things uh, two three of the coolest things right now in fintech well, a lot of stuff has been done um, and replicated worldwide. So FinTech started with a third of the companies dedicated to payments processing. So payments is done, um, in my view, Stripe, Adyen, Alipay, the other guys, you know, it's all done. Um, it's not necessarily finished, but it's, uh, it's an area that I think is not fertile in terms of for growth. Um, I still think a lot of corporate treasury and investment areas are underdeveloped from a fintech viewpoint. You, know, If you said what are the leading corporate treasury investment fintech startups out there, the list is quite narrow and probably eToro would be the top of mind one that comes to, into my head. But you know, th th there needs to be more in that space because I think that's a great opportunity. And the reason why it's not attacked is because it's more difficult to deal with B2B than B2C. So the challenger bank community is, um, again, well-developed. And what's interesting for me, top of mind, is the challenger bank community is now getting the repercussions of uh, their naivety in that um, we've seen N26, Monzo and others now being targeted by regulators for lack of know your client KYC onboarding during their processing of uh, new customers and that's a big challenge for them um, in fact what's interesting in that context is starling bank because Anne Bowden was a banker by nature and so they seem to have you know circumvented the issues that uh, the more young challenger banks are now encountering uh, and I think right now you know when we look at the technologies that are out there, artificial intelligence is the number one for me. In that, um, you know, when you talk to banks about artificial intelligence, they talk about chatbots. Well, that is so basic. It's 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 you know, step number one on, on the ladder. And the, it, let's say the ladder has ten steps. I'm on step number five. I'm thinking far more around um, avatars and natural language and uh, you know, speech recognition. So I, when we get to that stage, I think we'll really start to see some rock and roll. Yeah. I'm actually wondering very quickly, Chris, I mean, there is a dynamic or a, I, I won't know if it's a battle or a, what we want to say between big tech and fintech. Do you think big tech are going to win this, this sort of fintech war going forwards? Well, I just did a conference with Google and um, I shared with them my view about big tech and um, big banks. And 
as far as I'm concerned, it's a partnership. It's not a competition. Um, most of the big tech companies are nibbling around the periphery of finance in terms of loans and payments and credit, but they're not getting into deposit accounts because it's got a compliance overhead that's far too challenging for a big tech to be bothered dealing with. So they'd be better off partnering with a bank to do banking and not trying to do it themselves. And particularly because if you look at the big tech companies, particularly Facebook and Google, why would they want to bite the hand that feeds them? Same with Amazon, because advertising, cloud services, you know, that's where they're making huge revenues from the financial industry. Why would you want to throw that revenue line away? Although at the same time, they are looking at embedding uh, banking capabilities, banking as a service into their platforms. So it does create some dynamic of, of minor competitiveness between the banks, the fintechs and the big techs, right? Well, I've always said, if I'm a bank, I would rather be the partner of one of the big techs. And if I'm the first partner, then the second one doesn't get a look in. So I'd rather be there first. Yeah, I think I think the, the line goes at, at the regulation. So I, I don't think the big techs want to uh, risk getting regulated, or at least have some kind of the uh, same kind of supervision as uh, as a financial institution would have. have. Even though we've of course seen uh, acquisitions a lot with uh, with Apple, for example, on on the open banking space, but I think that's more about uh, getting more efficient payment rails uh, done at some at one point in time. But uh, I do want to go back to one of the points you made, uh, Chris, about the. Uh, uh, the challenger banks, uh, the uh, challenger banks that maybe uh, took a, took some shortcuts in the beginning in terms of onboarding and maybe not doing their KYC uh, properly. Uh, do you think that these uh, these challenger banks, these new banks or new kids on the block, uh, get I don't know uh, lighter touch uh, supervision from the regulators, or what do you think that actually happened uh, in the first place? Um, it's really about how they launched and how they've grown and the fact that they didn't necessarily understand all the detail. Um, when you look at a big multinational bank, it deals with about 128,000 regulations. When you look at a technology company, it deals with about 25,000 regulations. So five times more regulatory oversight and government involvement in your processes means that you can easily miss a trick. And I think a lot of these guys uh, when they launched, didn't have necessarily all the right people on the team. And specifically, when I look at some of the neobanks and challenger banks, I think that they didn't have someone like me, you know, wrinkled with grey hair, who could give them the guidance. Hmm. Uh, and, and what's interesting right now is, you know, because of the pandemic and everything, everything that's going around, we've seen a, a, a massive surge of business for neobanks, but at the same time, have they actually got the right checks and balances in place that complies with all the requirements of those 128,000 regulations? And that's where they're getting exposed. So, so I'm wondering, do you think we're going to start seeing a, a growth of mergers and acquisitions where the big banks will basically buy the challenger banks, neo banks? Uh, and vice versa. Uh, you know, what we're going to see, we've already seen some of the new banks um, buying small banks. So a good example would be Lending Club um, buying Radius Bank in the USA, for example, and um, the same with um, one of the German banks being acquired by a fintech startup in Europe. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll, we'll see 
both, that some of the big banks will be acquiring capability uh, and the big techs. You know, you mentioned Apple acquiring a UK payments company. Um, it's really just all about the ebb and flow of business. And one of the things I keep pointing out is that if you went back 20 years to 2002, there was no Facebook. Google was just starting and everything in our world today was um, you know, embryonic. So 20 years from now, who knows what it, this will look like? So then we have to pick up on the on the other topic you mentioned, uh, which is, of course, a hot topic even in here in our podcast uh, quite a bit. And that's the AI in banking or AI in financial services. So artificial intelligence, step one, I, I know my bank has a chatbot and uh, and I think it's kind of an investment advisor uh, slash uh, Q&A bot uh, that we have on the uh, on our internet site. And it, it works fine, I guess. Uh, and then there's a, there's a lot of uh, back office things happening with the transaction monitoring. But you mentioned this uh, step five uh, applications on, on AI and you mentioned avatars. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about what does a banking avatar look like? And has that something to do with the metaverse, perhaps? Uh, yeah, I mean, where we are today is on the early days of artificial intelligence. And the example of that is that um, most AI can do one job, like play chess mm. or AlphaGo. Um, when we get to general artificial intelligence, the systems can multitask and do several jobs. And then we get to super artificial intelligence where the machines are more clever than Paul, which is not difficult. Um, <laughs> sorry, Paul. Oh, that's um, perfectly well, honest, okay, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it goes in, in layers. Um, you know, Ex Machina, um, which you've probably seen the film if you haven't, it's a great film about robots and AI. You know, we will get to a stage eventually where AI becomes something that you find difficult to separate from real life. And going to the point about the metaverse, you know, the metaverse is meant to be an alternative life that's digital, that you can live and maybe enjoy more than your physical life. And um, it's definitely going to happen uh, because I'm a huge fan of science fiction and most science fiction becomes science fact eventually. And if anyone watched Star Trek, The Next Generation, Jean-Luc Picard, when he was younger, um, they had um, the holodeck. And that is the metaverse. You, know, you, know, you literally go through a door and you're living in another world that's tangible. You can touch and feel and believe that world exists, but it's completely digital. It's not a real world. And that's what the metaverse is. Um, and when we get to that world, we're going to have a metaverse bank and check out metaverse-bank.com or metaverse-coin.com. That's me. Um, and, you know, that world will need banks, um, but the banks will probably be the same as those in the real world. And that um, this has been evolving for many years. You know, the holodeck at Star Trek was 1990s, but in the 2000s, there was something called Second Life. You may remember Second Life. You know, if you don't like your first life, get a second life. Um, and Second Life failed. And the reason it failed is that the banking system in Second Life failed because the operators, Linden Labs of Second Life, didn't regulate the financial system, which was a real financial system. They had Linden Labs dollars that could trade into US dollars. And they let the bank fail. And then for three months, there was a virtual demonstration outside the virtual headquarters of Linden Labs. And they eventually said, you know what, to be a bank in 
the virtual world in the metaverse, you've got to be a bank in the real world. That's why we have banks. But that actually sort of brings another discussion that I, I repeatedly have with an awful lot of people around the whole metaverse and banks in the vet metaverse and even doing banking in the metaverse. From my perspective, to a certain degree, I don't think we're going to end up in a situation realistically where we're just duplicating bricks and mortar banking in the metaverse. I think we're going to end up in a situation where banking is going to be in a different format, in a different way, more uh, embedded and maybe unconscious banking capabilities. And I'm wondering whether, you know, one, the banks are ready for that. And two, maybe, I mean, do you agree? What do you think? Well, if I was living in a virtual holodeck universe and the metaverse, then I don't want to think about paying and banking. Exactly. Um, and going to a branch. And I don't like the word embedded. Equally, I, I hate the word channel. So if anyone says omni-channel, multi-channel, I kill them. Um, and the reason being is that these are alien words from the last century. You know, and embedded is a industry internal view looking outwards rather than an outward view looking into the industry. So I talk much more about invisible banking. Uh, in that it just takes place without me having to think about it. And you know, I can set alerts and um, so, you know, warnings around my account, but I don't have to think about if I'm flying through the metaverse that I just bought some Gucci pants and have to pay for them. You know, I'd rather just get the Gucci pants. And you know, if I've gone outside my limits, I get an alert saying you need to, you know, uh top up your accounts so i i think where, where we get to it's not embedded finance it's invisible finance it's it's where finance takes place within the virtual world that i'm living in when i'm not at work when i'm not in the real world um and i just enjoy myself without having to think about money and finance but it does require money and finance and and that's the underlying point now the in interesting aspect there is what, what money and finance does the metaverse need? Is it crypto or is it um, you know, central bank digital currencies and f formal banking? Uh, as I say, I think it has to be formal banking because Second Life failed because it had no formal banking system. But the formal bank could be Coinbase or it could be Binance. It could be something other than JP Morgan Chase and ING. Um, so that will get very interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, we've seen what the banks are trying to do in the uh, in the metaverse. We see JP Morgan open a branch office, and uh, we they definitely saw that back already in Second Life, when banks uh, started opening branches in this in these digital environments. And surprise, surprise, people don't don't want to go to branch offices in the physical world. Why would they want to do that in the digital world? I was uh, just last week. I was joking in a conference that they should implement like a queuing ticket machine in the in the metaverse, and then you need to take a ticket, and then you have to sit in a lounge for ten minutes and just wait to, to get to the clerk just to make it authentic and that that's so that's definitely not the way uh to do banking in the metaverse uh chris you observe this space a lot have you seen any interesting companies or who's actually doing it right have you seen anything that's happening that's, that's been done right uh in context of metaverses uh, when it comes to financial services today i think it's too early days um so you know, at the moment most people are talking about De Decentraland, yeah. uh, which is the place to watch. 
Uh, and as you say, some banks have formed some experiments in that space, but they are experimental. Um, it's very early days. And at the moment, I guess the most exciting thing that I'm seeing is really around the whole idea of cryptocurrencies, going back to uh, you know something that's top of mind. And I, I, I kind of, I'm a little bit concerned about crypto, to be honest, because there's, I was reading the other day, and I don't know if this figure is accurate, it sounded too high, but that they were stating there's over 18,000 coins out there. And I'm kind of going, geez, you know, who needs 18,000 coins? So Bitcoin, Ethereum, Do Dogecoin, or is it Dogecoin? Dogecoin. Um, those are all fine. Um, but, you know, Shiba Inu, uh, Cardano, Polygon, you, you can't start going down the listing. You end up with Jesus coin and Tit coin and shit coin and it's like what the hell you know but um we are going to get to the stage where it'll become interesting how we bridge between crypto cbdc's and traditional banking and the metaverse so, and, and who owns that space so now we've thrown thrown the terms around metaverse uh, we talked about uh cryptocurrencies and all of that stuff the one thing that we haven't mentioned yet is is web3 which gets mentioned quite a bit as well as a term when talking about metaverses so maybe we should throw that in uh, in the mix as well and uh, get your get your opinion on how do you see the interplay between the term web3 how 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 is that defined and how does that link to to the metaverse or or does it well, Web3 is meant to be part of this whole centralization movement that will power the metaverse and more than that will power the ownership of our data. Um, so I mentioned Decentraland and we also need to mention DeFi, Decentralized Finance. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea being that we can put the financial system into the network and trust the network. So rather than in God we trust, uh, in servers we trust um and you know we're definitely moving that way and web3 will be when that becomes something that's viable and real uh we're still a way away from it and what's particularly interesting from my side i spend a lot of time talking with people about identity um my friend dave birch who you'll know uh, wrote a book about identity as new money and it's true, you know, that if you have a uh, an identity that's verified on the network, then you can trade and transact. If you don't have one, then you can't. Uh, it's, it's a binary option. You know, it's a little bit like if you fly into Finland or Poland and you don't have a passport, you can't enter the country. Mm. Uh, it's exactly the same in the financial system. If you don't have a proven identity, you can't trade and transact. But the proven identity within the network becomes interesting because the network doesn't recognize Poland and Finland. It doesn't recognize countries or borders. It only recognizes access and trade. And this is where I see a real fine line today uh, around the challenge to governments, which is how do they regulate and manage a system that doesn't recognize their regulations or management. Hmm. It's actually interesting. I mean, a lot of people are touting the fact that with Web3, cryptocurrencies and DAOs, it's, it's basically going to eliminate the need for banks and, and the existing current financial infrastructure, which I, I, I doubt is really going to happen. But what's your view on that? 
Well, I mean, I've lost quite a lot of money on crypto um, in unregulated exchanges and um, companies. Uh, equally, I've made quite a lot, a lot of money on crypto <laughs> in regulated companies and exchanges. So, my it's a personal view, but I I I would not want to to have my money in something that I could not trust. Hmm. Now, I may say I trust my own management, and therefore I'll get a cold wallet. Um, and hold it offline in my office with my password in terms of my crypto investments. Um, trouble with that is that if I lost that tether or if I lost that um, storage unit, then it's gone. Mm. Yeah, and it's gone forever. And there's plenty of people who have lost. You know, at the moment, I think every one in five dollars invested in cryptocurrencies has been lost mm. by people because they just can't remember passwords or they lost the actual offline wallet that they were keeping it in. Um, so that's the reason why, again, it comes back to you do need banking, you do need financial services, and you need to have those who you can trust that therefore means they are regulated. The problem with that is if they're regulated by a government, then you can be exposed to cash in, cash out, tax and um, oversight, uh, which is the reason why maybe it's better to be regulated by the network. Yeah, I'll, I promise we'll move on from the metaverse and crypto topic very soon, but there's one more thing I want to kind of talk about, which is the fact that whenever you mention metaverse to anybody who's interested in cryptocurrencies, especially, uh, they seem to think that automatically think that uh, because we have a digital environment, a natively digital environment like the metaverse, however you define it, then automatically you should be using cryptocurrencies as, as the way to uh, exchange value in those worlds. But um, I mean, I, I've been working in payments and identity space for, for a while, and I, I don't understand why. Um, what, what, is, what is the thing with crypto that makes it better for this digital environment? Because I don't think so. But um, do you have any insight into why, why do these crypto people think that it's, the, it's the absolutely the only possible choice uh, for the metaverses as, as, a, uh, as an instrument of, uh, of exchange? So number one is it's not... Uh, mandatory to use crypto and metaverse. Mm. Number two is the reason why people do is because it allows you to transact and trade across borders without any exchange. Mm. Uh, so everyone can accept Bitcoin or Ethereum. Uh, not everyone will accept US dollar or Polish lottery or euros. Mm. So the fact is that the metaverse doesn't require crypto but a lot of people who are in the metaverse think that crypto it's easier in the metaverse that actually makes uh, makes sense it is a global currency for all its uh, pitfalls uh, it is it is the same bitcoin one bitcoin is one bitcoin a, a, across the world i've argued for a long time that there, there needs to be a globally networked currency uh, that doesn't recognize borders and it, it's interesting because i got into arguments many times with libertarians who you know, a comment I regularly make is you cannot have money without government. And they think I mean the Federal Reserve. And the fact is, what I mean is a government that you trust, which could be the network. So it doesn't mean a national government. It means you have to have money with government that you can trust. Otherwise, you can't exchange and believe that the money is safe. If the money is in a government that is the network, 
that's a government. That, that's fine. And if it's global, that's even better because it avoids you know, national boundaries and national interests. But you also need to have some regulatory control over that as well, right? Well, that's what I mean by government. Yeah. Know, the, the, mm -hmm. the government then provides the license to thrill. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that they, they allow you then to trade and transact with trust. And if it's a network government, then you just have to ask yourself, do I believe this network government mm. is going to do a good job? And if my money is compromised or my account is compromised, can I get my money back? Um, and, and those are the, the real questions you should be asking. So we're going back to the metaverse question. You know, if, if I took all my money and put it into crypto and then lived in the metaverse, could I have a government there in the network that I could tr trust would give my money back if if I, if I was compromised. Mm. That's the real question. Yes. Well, uh, I think that must be one of the most balanced arguments I've heard for uh, for crypto uh, in a long time. So it's uh, definitely worth uh, worth thinking about. I think this uh, notion of uh, global digital currency is definitely an interesting one. But I did promise that this was the last metaverse and crypto question. So we are going to move on uh, to the next topic, which of course is that, uh, Chris, you have a new book out. Uh, it's uh, like we mentioned already, it's your 17th uh, business book. Uh, yep, it's a little bit blurred on the uh, on the video, but uh, there we go. There we go. Digital for good. Excellent. And uh, yeah, we couldn't let uh, let you go without, without asking what is the book about? What is the new thing in the 17th book that you wanted to write about? And uh, and why should I buy it as a Mother's Day gift uh, for my mom next weekend? Well, I wouldn't buy it for your mom unless she's seriously interested in the future of the world. Um, so basically, it's a book that was bubbling for about the last five years. And it dates back to when I visited... Um, Alipay and Ant Financial Group in Hangzhou, China, which was for the book I produced in 2018 called Digital Human. Um, and as I walked around their office, there was a poster saying, remember, do good for society and good for the planet. Mm -hmm. And it really struck me. It kind of hit, hit, hit my heart. Uh, main reason being is I hadn't seen a poster like that in any bank. Um, but more than that, it was around that's a really good purpose. That's a clear sign of what the company stands for. And so I started developing the idea of purpose-driven banking and that you have to stand for something or you will fall. So do good for society, good for the planet. It's, that's a really good purpose. That's a clear purpose. And it then developed out of that into stakeholder capitalism. And the idea that shareholder capitalism is you know, last century. Um, if you're only do, do, you know, running a business to produce profits, you won't survive because that doesn't make sense, particularly with Gen Z. You have to have a business that has a purpose to do good for society and good for the planet, and then clearly say what it is that you're trying to achieve as a company, as your values, um, which then translates into your vision and mission. Um, so it goes far further. And in particular, with the climate emergency and Greta Thunberg and all the other stuff that was going on, um, it's in it, it's integrated into ESG, environmental, sustainable, uh, social, and corporate governance uh, areas. But with, around all of that, I then thought to myself, you know what, Chris? You know, if you write this, it doesn't really stand up because 
I'm one guy and it'll come like a rant from one person. So I went around the world and invited all my friends around the world um, to write chapters. So I've got chapters from every continent uh, and interviews with many people uh, around why this is important and how the bottom line is finance and technology can be leveraged and used to make a better world and a better society. And that's the point of the book, which is from every continent, every part of the world, there's a belief that if we use technology and finance in the right way, we can save this planet. And actually, these are the levers to save the planet. It's not governments. You know, going back to what we were just saying before, you know, technology doesn't recognize governments. It's about using technology and financial services to focus on biodiversity, renewables, and environmentalism and society uh, to be more inclusive, to be more literate, and to be better at dealing with the issues that we face today as humans. That's actually fantastic and very deep. I mean, when we look at, at banking across the world, we can see a, a great differentiation between how digital some nations and some banking communities are, for instance, you know, Asia Pacific versus America. So in, in putting your book together, did you find uh, some large differences between various different parts of the world? Ah, bit of a tough one, Paul, because um, if, if I'm honest, I'd say that Asia, Africa, Europe and South America are probably more in line with what I'm discussing than North America. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, um, one of the leading sustainable investment companies from Canada wrote a chapter in the book um, and you know, the movement started there. So it's not saying North America is behind, but I think when I look at North America, by way of example, there's a lot of discussion there about stakeholder capitalism, but that's the talk. The walk is shareholder capitalism. You know, that because of the investment community and the way that management is driven by their bonuses and remuneration, the North Americans are very much focused upon short-term and short-term profit. Whereas Asia um, in particular, um, I would say is, is driven in a different way. And the best example of that uh, is something I saw at a conference years ago. And then I was talking to a friend the other day and it was um, reminded to me, uh, there was a picture of a lion in a river with mountains behind. And they showed this to Asian students and American students in a university research trial. And the American students saw the lion, the river, the mountains, and the Asian students saw the mountains, the river, the lion, or tiger, rather. And it's that mentality, uh, which is it's completely different. So in Asia, they see the whole picture first, the background, and then they come to the focal, focal point. Whereas in American, and European students, to be honest, they start with a focal point, the tiger, and then look at the bigger picture. Uh, and from a, and the reason I mention this is that from a sustainability and environmental viewpoint, you need to start with the big picture. Yeah. yeah. Whereas we tend to start with the, the near term, the immediate thing in front of us, the, the, the tiger. I just need to check there. We suddenly had some audio issues from you, Chris. I don't know if it was just me, Villa, but did you hear it as well? 
some buzzing sound here. Yeah, the there was suddenly some interference. So your volume went down, Chris. I, I don't know, but I, I think I think most of the listeners will have heard what you said. Yeah, we will we will push through uh, and see how it comes in the uh, in the edit in the uh, in the afterwards or the after edits. But uh, Chris, I did want to uh, come back to um, ask a bit of the same question as uh, as Paul did, but but from a, from through the lens of this purpose driven banking. Now, if I go to the website of, uh, well, any bank, I, I suppose, these days, uh, and look at the ESG values and the strategies, they all talk about uh, being very ESG-driven, uh, carbon neutral, all of these things seems to be in order if you look at these bank websites, at least. So it begs the question that, uh, are we are, are we kicking an open door here? Or is there something that uh, perhaps you could we could use to identify what really is a purpose-driven bank and what maybe not well whatever bank website you're looking at most of them it's all shit <laughs> it's complete bullshit. That, that's two jokes in an episode <laughs> it, it, it's greenwashing it's complete rubbish um they're not they're not doing what they claim to be doing they're just advertising and marketing uh it's good PR to say we're investing in a sustainability project in the Amazon. It's it doesn't mean they're actually doing anything that's committed by the executive team across the organisation. Um, so one of the people who wrote a chapter in the new book is Gail Bradbrook, who's a co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. And some people say to me, "Why are you supporting such an extremist group?" And the answer is, they're not extremists. They are activists, and there's a difference. You know, maybe they break bank windows, which is what they do do at uh, you know, Barclays and HSBC and other banks, but that's not illegal. You know, that's not a crime. Um, the crime is to have Barclays and HSBC investing trillions of dollars since the Paris Accord in fossil fuel firms that are destroying the planet. And so you need to have that in context. And in fact, normally, not every time, but most times, these activist protesters are leaving court without a, a, a sentence. You know, they, they leave court with the judge's a, a agreement that they were doing the right thing. And the reason why the judge would say they're doing the right thing is, you know, I don't know if you've got kids, but I've got kids. And in 2050, there may not be a planet for, the, for my children, uh, you know, based on what's happening right now. And maybe they'll have to go and live on Mars because they travel on Elon Musk's SpaceX and go and live somewhere else. But I don't want my children to go and have, live somewhere else. You know, the beauty of our planet is fantastic. And if the financial system, and right now the financial system is destroying the planet by funding fossil fuel firms, then I want to change that. 71% of the greenhouse gas emissions from 1986 to 2016 came from 100 companies. In fact, half of the greenhouse gas emissions came from 25 companies. It's the Shells and the uh, Exxons of this world. We need to change that. And the only way you can change that is through the financial system. So what I see happening right now is activist investors and activist consumers squeezing both ends of the system to make the banks change and you can't do it overnight um anna botan who's the executive chair of santander made a really good point which is we can't switch off coal in poland which is where i live 
tonight because Poland depends on coal, but we can force Poland's government and institutions to move away from coal through the financial system. And that's what we have to do. And we have to turbocharge that because we need to make it 2030, not 2050. Then I've got a, a deep rooted question down to the title of your book, which is digital for good. Are we saying that technology and digital is the answer to this problem? Or are we saying that re-educating the bankers and the financial system is actually the answer? It's both, Paul. Uh, I mean, you, you, technology can make a massive difference in how we register the health of our world. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I keep discussing is the integration of different industries. So we talk about FinTech and RegTech and InsureTech. What about MedTech and GovTech and FarmTech and AirTech and all the other industries that are out there? And if we could join them all together, what would that mean? So it's already happening. The insurance companies are joining up with the farming community to real-time monitor what's happening in fields, the health of the field, the pollution, the acidity, the rainfall, because that makes a difference to the crops, which obviously, therefore, if you have failed crops, you make an insurance claim. So if you can monitor that in real time, you get far more pre-knowledge and um, preventative action than if you wait until everything is messed up. Uh, and that's where I think we'll start seeing some really interesting developments again in the, over the next decade, which is when you get joined up tech, not just fintech. I had the same question about the metaverse uh, in context of banking, and I gotta gotta go with the same question I here. I thought we'd finish the metaverse. <laughs> uh, we did, but I'm gonna have the same question as I did for the metaverse, which is that if uh, uh, if we didn't really see any anything that fantastic happening in the metaverse right now when it comes to banking. Uh, is there anything happening in, in purpose-driven banking? Is anybody doing a good job today? Or is it something that we also are just, are just waiting to happen in the, in the future? Well, I had a number of interviews in the book. Um, one, in fact, two come to mind straight away. Adrian Gore, who's the founder of Discovery Group Financial Services in South Africa. Mm. And the purpose of Discovery Group is to uh, make health through wealth. So one of the things they do, for example, is um, a life assurance product called Vitality, which uses Fitbit or Apple Watch to see if you actually go to the gym and if you go to the gym, what your workout's like and how many calories you burn. And if you are using um, the, the gym or if you are actively working out, they can see that in real time through their transmitters and give you lower life assurance premiums because you're, you're being healthy. I interviewed um, Tom Blom Blomfield, who's the co-founder of Monzo. Uh, and when Monzo started, they had a clear purpose, which is to give and provide financial services for everyone. And he gave me two examples, but uh, the one that stays in my mind is if you're homeless, how do you get financial services? no fixed abode. Um, so they decided that if you had a guardian mentor who could give their address on your behalf, then you could have a bank account. And in fact, it's interesting because HSBC is now doing this as well. So homeless people who traditionally have been excluded from the system uh, because they don't have an, an address 
are now getting financial services, which they never had, had access to before. Um, and this is a mixture of technology and vision and purpose. It's, it's, it's about what are you trying to achieve? And I, I mean, I see this in all, all parts of the world. I mentioned Ant, Ant Alipay, do good for society and good for the planet. Uh, I don't know if you know the ant forest, but that was something that was dreamed up by one of their people one day. And then the team worked on the idea and then they rolled it out. And it's now the, the biggest um, multiplayer gaming um, platform in the world, which is if you spend your money wisely and ecologically friendly, as in you don't drive, you cycle, or you don't get a bus, you walk. Um, every time you do something that's ecologically friendly, you get points. And the more points you get, the more likely you are to get to the 100 point prize, which is they plant a tree. And they planted millions of trees. In fact, by now, I don't know the number, but I'd, I'd say it's probably a billion trees across China, um, reducing you know, carbon usage by three or 4%. And that's all happened down to one idea from one person about what about if we link how you use your money to being environmentally friendly. One of the things these uh, incumbent banks, the, the websites that I mentioned, uh, talking about this, uh, well, how fantastic they are with all these uh, green values and, and things like that. Many times they offer these uh, carbon offsets or services so you can offset your carbon uh, by, by clicking a button on the, on the mobile banking application and, and so forth. What's your opinion on those types of, uh, of, of services? Are they always good uh, or is there something you, we would need to know more when, uh, when going for these uh, carbon offset solutions? Uh, well, in banking, in this conversation, for example. Well, you need to mix the actions of an individual versus the actions of an organization in that we can all do our own carbon offset activity and it'll have minimal impact um, it feels good to do it and so i fly around a lot but every time i book a flight i always accept car the carbon offset option um, it, even then it doesn't mean i should fly around a lot <laughs> it's like you know, I should stay at home, um, which I have done for two years, thanks to the pandemic. Um, but when I look at the banks and the financial institu institutions, I, I guess the fundamental disappointment is they talk the talk and they don't walk the walk. So um, I'm not going to name names, but on my blog, I have named name, name names. Um, nearly all of the large financial firms in their annual reports and in their chief executive shareholder letters say environmental responsibility and sustainability is our number one priority. And then you look under the hood and they're investing in primarily fossil fuel firms and non-sustainable institutions. Until their behavior changes, you know, every carbon offset of my flights or of your investments makes pretty much no darn difference. Makes sense. I think uh, I definitely feel good when I do the carbon offset, uh, and uh, maybe every little helps. I think it's uh, it's an interesting balance, but uh, we also have to keep an eye on the on the macro things as well. Every so, little helps could be a good slogan for a, a greengrocer. Anyway, yeah, could be. Yeah, actually, I, I want to I want to sidetrack completely from uh, the metaverse and, and everything else in your book. I I've been told this. There's an interesting story that goes with you around uh, Captain Cake. Do you, do you care to share? 
Well, during the pandemic, I was at home for the last two years with my two little boys who were four, they're now six, uh, twins. And um, I got fed up reading them, Julia Donaldson and David Williams and Winnie the Pooh. So I sat down one night and I said, I'll tell you a story about Captain, well, being honest, Captain Kirk. Um, but but they, mis they misheard me and said, oh, Captain Cake, yay. And then it became a series of stories about Captain Cake, Lieutenant Chocolate, Sergeant Jelly and Private Potato. Um, the, the candy crew and the sweet candy fly flying through space to sweetly go where no sweets gone before. And uh, I floated the idea past my publisher and they contracted me to write five books and they're out there now. My favourite one is um, Captain Cake and the Rotten Tomatoes. I really don't like the mods. The, the Rotten Tomatoes are covering every planet in brown goo, and Captain Cake has to save Earth before they cover us in goo. I, I, I'm going to have to get the books. It sounds fantastic. I need to get that for the kids. I mean, you've got a future in writing, uh, you know, children books now. Yeah, it's much more fun than fintech. Yeah, yeah I can understand that. I like yeah, it all with nice, uh, you know. Uh, drawings and, and pictures as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I've, I've got one here. So uh, again, I don't know about the. Uh, oh. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! Okay. Really great. Oh, there you go. There you, there you go. Yeah. So meet the candy crew. So um, <laughs> this is Captain Cake, and this is uh, this is Private Potato, and Private <laughs> Potato has no special powers. All the other guys have special powers, but she's the most important member of the crew. <laughs> Fantastic. So fintech and children's books. I, I think there's there must be some common ground between these two. Uh, let's uh, but let's not get into that <laughs> today. Perhaps uh, it's been fantastic. Chris, was there anything else we we forgot to talk about today that you wanted to mention uh, before we go? Uh, nothing particularly. Although I guess we're always oh I'm always thinking about what's next, mm. and um, I'm really interested right now in quantum computing and multiplanetary finance. So there's wow. two subjects for the next time we talk. Absolutely. Uh, quantum, that's a, that's a really a rabbit hole we need to go, go to. And uh, this planet, planetary banking is, uh, is something else as well. Yes. Looks like we have the topics for, for the next episode when we get you on, Chris. But uh, this time, uh, as, as we say on this podcast, is that time flies when you're having fun. And we've definitely spent our share of this hour uh, talking with you, which has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, Chris, uh, the audience, of course, wants to know, uh, where can they find you? Where can they ask you about your books? Uh, your children or fintech or both uh, and where can they uh, get in touch with you i'm easy to find but thefinancer.com captaincake.com and chris underscore skinner on twitter there you go and that's it for this week's episode of fintech daydreaming again it, this has been a great conversation i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did uh, and uh, and paul did as well and as always, we, we will remind you of the mandatory things you have to do. Wherever you're listening or watching us, hit that subscribe button so, so everybody else is able to find these conversations equally fine as, as you have done uh, so far. And if you liked uh, what you heard today, please write us a review. Uh, the, uh, the algorithms really love this, uh, these reviews especially and hit the five-star review uh, while you're at it. These are really helping us. We're doing this not for profit. We're not getting paid to do this at all. Uh, this is the only small reward we ask in return uh, for from you is a comment and a review. Thank you for that. And with that being said, this has been another episode of Fintech Daydreaming. Mm -hmm.
This is Fintech Daydreaming. <laughs>